Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged wastrel playing old adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom and this episode we're looking at book 30 in the fighting fantasy series Chasms of Malice. Before that there's a little bit of housekeeping to attend to. Firstly and most importantly I have two new patrons to thank kind souls who've gone to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and offered up their hard-earned cash to keep this podcast going. John and Graham, thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me. Aside from my heartfelt gratitude, patrons also receive all the gaming things I write as a thank you for their support. I'm delighted to say that my new game book, Rats in the Cellar, has just been added to that list which currently stands at three game books and two complete RPGs. Not bad for a minimum donation of a single thin English pound, or local equivalent. If you're a patron and you haven't received your copy, do please get in touch, either through Patreon or by email at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com, and I will be sure to sort you out. I'm very pleased with how Rats in the Cellar turned out, and I hope you all enjoy it very much. Now let's get down to the meat of this episode. Hard to believe we're already at book 30, but here we are, the numbers do not lie. Chasms of Malice was released in 1988. It was written by Luke Sharp, who has already contributed one book to the series, the somewhat sketchy Star Strider, which had some good ideas, but didn't really come together at all well. However, we've seen before that a less than ideal early book doesn't always mean the rest follow the same trajectory. Most authors, including of course Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, learn a lot from their first attempt and come back stronger the second time. The fact that we're in the traditionally safer fantasy territory also gives me cause to hope. Another point in this book's favour is that the interior art is by Russ Nicholson. It's always a joy to me to see Russ Nicholson credited on a book I have a marked personal preference for artists who bring a distinct visual style to their work, and his stuff is always full of character. I quite like the cover art too, which seems to have fallen through a time warp from a late 90s box of Citadel miniatures. There's a bald vampire-looking fellow wearing red armour, charging on a horse with a bat lurking in the background, and everything is on fire. It's by Les Edwards, who had already done covers for Caverns of the Snow Witch, Demons of the Deep, which was particularly good, and Crypt of the Sorcerer. And his painterly style is perhaps a little bit generic in some ways, but it is pleasingly vivid as well. Let's have a look at the rules. Nothing too complicated to report here, thankfully. We've got the classic skill, stamina and luck combination. We've only got five provisions to restore stamina, which makes me a bit sad, but we do have the one thing which is even better than food, a cat. Yes, we're accompanied on our quest by a magical familiar called Tabasha, who can restore either skill or luck to its initial score as a one-time only deal. You have to choose which before you start, and I've chosen luck. I always choose luck. Tabasha can help you in other ways through the course of your adventure, but only nine times. You can use these to summon extra provisions, giving you potentially access to 14 meals in total, but she can also apparently help in other ways that will be specified in the text. 
Nine times she could help for the nine lives of a cat. That's a wonderful touch. And I'm already looking forward to seeing how this feline companion can help us out. Speaking as a cat owner, I feel like sleeping and getting underfoot should be the core skills she brings to the table. But I imagine it'll be something more actually useful. Uh, it also notes that you can find fuel through your adventure, which will sometimes allow you to cook your food, which will make provisions more effective, adding two additional points of stamina on top of the four they usually add. I can only assume that instead of the traditional hard tack and biscuits which come pre-cooked, in this adventure you're travelling with a large bag of raw mints. There is one small addition to the combat system, which the author refers to as one strike combat. This refers to fighting when in a precarious position, such as standing on a narrow ledge or on top of a stepladder. In this situation, the first person to win a combat round has sent the other falling to their doom, presumably through the Spanish announcer's table. I'm not sure this needed to be in the main rules section. It's simple enough you could have just put it as a spot rule as and when it comes up in the body of the text. I also feel like fighting on a high thing is subject to diminishing returns, like a cheap movie that does the exact same stunt five times because they got a bulk buy discount from the stunt artist. I have rolled up my character and given them the suitably heroic name of Plyer's Basket Weave. They have a skill of 11, a stamina of 20 and a luck of 10. With all of that out of the way, let's get into Chasms of Malice. Background. Gorak. A minor kingdom, situated between the rivers Dart and Dagger, tributaries of the river Swordflow. Gorak was founded by Tancred the Magnificent after his adventures with his brother Orgaz in the Dark Chasms. The kingdom was to be the gateway between the area of Cool and the caverns, chasms and tunnels of the Gadden people. Gorak has been without a monarch for many years and has been governed by the Lord's Riddermark. Gadden, or Feel Brethren, they sound a little unsettling. You might as well call them the Bad Touching Brethren. The Gadden people are originally from southwest Cool. They migrated to the Deep Chasms for no known reason, although some authorities claim religious persecution, and created their own culture. They began to give birth to blind babies soon after constructing their complex system of tunnels. Their other senses were greatly enhanced and they became masters of the dark. The Gadden Knights, the Sense Warriors, are supreme fighters in the dark. They are rarely to be seen in the Toplands, as they called Cool, since the time of Tancred the Magnificent. And these two little segments are from the Treatise on the Kingdoms of Southwest Cool by Ignatius Pomfret, which is the kind of name I would give to one of my adventurers. We've got another extract as well, and it sort of begins with an ellipsis. In that year did we halt the malice which was afflicting our kingdom, but at great cost. We lost our beloved brother Orgaz to the evil, and in a mighty struggle we cast him into the dark chasms, and did entrust him to the noble Gadden warriors, to guard him and his Kudam spawn for all eternity. The great seals were bound to the true shield, and placed in the darkest vaults of Gorak Keep. Pray God that none will have to... Dot, dot, dot. Well, I think we might have to... Dot, dot, dot in the course of this adventure. 
That is a fragment from the Annals and Histories of Tancred, the Magnificent King of Gorak. So now uh, the narrative background begins. While flying in the guise of a hawk over southwest Cool on his way to the gathering of the Mage Order, the wizard Astrigal is summoned by the Lord of the Riddermark, Regent of Gorak, to investigate the sudden change in fortunes of the small kingdom. Lord Riddermark explains that strange, dark creatures are abroad. People are attacked and killed for no reason but sheer malice. Malice capitalised there. Not just malice, but malice. The vital truffle trade route along Tancred's march is no longer safe, and the popular Aslef leader of the stalwart Knights of the Grey Order has disappeared. Nobody can understand what is happening in what was, until recently, a peaceful land. Astrigal assumes a worried expression and rushes off to consult the annals and histories of Gorak. The great, dusty tome confirms his memory of the story of the true shield. He slams the book shut and makes his way to the deepest vault of Gorak Keep. By the light of a blazing torch he finds the great seals broken and the shield gone. Across the floor is a wide crack leading to the dark chasms. Astragal explains to Lord Riddermark his fears that someone has unleashed the malice of Orgas and the Kudam by breaking the great seals. If Orgas has the shield, he will try to break the spell of its age-old power. If he succeeds, the seven Kudam will then have the power to multiply. First, there will be forty-nine. Then, two thousand four hundred and one. Then, Five million seven hundred and sixty-four thousand eight hundred and one, until they become uncountable hordes. I feel like by the time your army numbers five million seven hundred and sixty-four thousand eight hundred and one, by most fantasy kingdom standards, that is already uncountable. Astragal emphasizes that to kill Orgaz, it is necessary first to destroy all the Kudam and only a direct descendant of Tancred the Magnificent can then hope to stand up to the evil power of Orgaz himself. Lord Riddermark tells Astragal that Tancred's line of descendants ended many ages ago. Astragal ignores the remark, and pulls out the crystal of Barea, which shows him the way to the blood heir of Tancred the Magnificent. Astragal finds you working in the under-kitchens as a third assistant rabbit-skinner. He grabs you, and before you have the chance to wipe your hands, whisks you away to the vaults. He stands you in the middle of a dusty room and whispers some strange incantations. You stare in wonder as a sword rises from the dirt and lodges itself firmly in your hand. That makes it sound like you've been stabbed through the hand, which I don't think is what the author was going for. Astragal stands back and proclaims you Tancred's heir. Astragal explains the quest for the shield that no other may undertake. No other can strike fear into the heart of Orgas or wield the shining sword. He also warns you about the traitor in Gorak. You must be on your guard at all times, especially if, uh, when you return. You strap on plain leather armour and a simple cloak. Astragal announces that he has no potions with him to help you in your quest. Instead, he picks up a small cat and passes it to you. 
this is tabisha the bazook from the line of the cat goddesses she will stay close to you and help you in your quest use her cautiously and wisely nine times and no more now there is no time to lose he urges you on to the deep chasm in the great vault so there we go that's the background there's a sort of interesting tone i would say in the sense that in many ways this is bargain basement fantasy cliche but with a very unusual naming convention which i might talk about at the end there's like reasons why the names are like they are i understand but at the same time there's a sense of humor in there as well which i quite like the humor is is there for the the reader but it doesn't undercut the mood of world in peril fantasy stuff which is you know the stock in trade of fighting fantasy so yeah i do quite like it then the bit where it's like oh yeah you're a third assistant rabbit skinner which feels like pretty much my natural station in life i won't lie and the whole if oh rather when you return is quite nice there's also a picture of astragal and uh, he's waving you goodbye from the top of a chasm you're sort of looking up at him and he looks less like a mighty wizard and more like a crusty who should be drinking cider at a free festival uh, it's a lovely illustration unsurprisingly he's literally got a mouse in his beard and he's got a beautiful long beaked bird sitting on one shoulder i mean he's very russ nicholson it's very nice we've got a lovely kind of clear setting as well which i'm enjoying like straight down into the darkness very much in a chasm of malice you leap into the darkness and land on a rocky slope it is very dark looking up at the hole you see the wizard astragal waving to you and saying remember that you are tancred's heir and well good luck you turn back to face the darkness tabisha nestles in your hood and begins to purr no I have a cat on my lap as we speak. He's not purring, but he is at least not yowling for food. I do love cats. At the same time, the sword starts to vibrate and shine. You see the path ahead. Several small, furry creatures rush for cover. You walk along the rocky tunnel for a long time until it opens out into a larger cavern. You find three exits. Which one will you take? The one on the left? a narrow crack in the middle or a wider crack on the right which drops down almost vertically so do i want to go through a narrow crack or a wide crack or just the exit on the left i mean we always take the one on the left but here it seems as though that's the most sensible option as well because i don't want to get stuck in a narrow crack and i don't want to fall down a vertical shaft so we will take the one on the left you enter the tunnel and notice shapes carved on the rock, but you can make no sense of them. You understand the vulgar runes, i.e. letters of a mysterious ancient alphabet, but these patterns are merely raised circles and squares set in blocks. You travel down the sloping path, which eventually ends in a larger tunnel that has two deep ruts worn along its visible length. You guess that many carts used this route in years gone by. Do you choose left? along the tunnel or will you go right uh, we'll go left again 
As you stride between the ruts, Tabasha jumps off your shoulder and darts into a crack in the wall. You stop and hear a squeak and a scrabbling until she emerges with a fat, furry worm between her teeth. She deposits it at your feet and obviously wants you to eat it. You do feel hungry. Do you want to eat it or do you think you'll be better off without it? I would never eat what a cat had brought me in the real world, but I sort of feel like this might be the right answer. I mean, is Luke Sharp just playing with the audience and going, oh, look, here is a cat that's brought an inedible tribute to its owner, which is like normal cat behaviour, or is this, because she's magical, something worthwhile? This is a, a real poser. I'm going to eat it. Of course I'm going to eat it. Oh. You grab the wriggling worm, close your eyes and bite. You are surprised at the wonderful taste. Add one stamina point, stamina already at maximum. Tabasha looks satisfied, rubs herself on your leg, then jumps back onto your shoulder. Oh, she's a lovely cat. They're all lovely cats. The tunnel begins to slope gently downwards. You notice platforms and steps cut out of the rock. It looks as though some great civilization had once constructed the route. Suddenly you hear a noise. The sword loses its brightness and you listen carefully in the dark. You sense a shape collapse on the ground by your feet. In the distance you can see two torches and hear the shrieks and screams of what can only be orcs. The sword shines momentarily and you see a wounded dwarf at your feet holding a metal collar. The orcs are getting closer. Do you help the dwarf or hide and see what happens? There is a picture of the dwarf and it's very nice. It's a good dwarf. He's got the hood, he's got the beard, he's got his spiked collar held up, kind of looking a bit like a tambourine if I'm honest. And in the background you can just see two villainous looking orcs with torches searching obviously for the dwarf. So we've met our dwarf slash little old man. This is indeed a proper fighting fantasy book. Am I going to help him? I think I'm going to help him. You stand your ground and the sword shines brightly. The orc sees you. One of them drops his torch and pulls out a sword. Go away. The dwarf is ours. He hisses at you. You say nothing. The orc realises he'll have to fight you. The scavenger orc has a skill of six and a stamina of Eight should not be too much of a problem, but for the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. Despite um, rolling really quite well, the scavenger orc didn't do a single point of damage to me, so I remain on stamina 20. As you fight, the second orc grabs the metal collar and runs away, chuckling at his cleverness. The second orc has disappeared. You look at the dwarf. An arrow sticks out of his side, but then turns to smoke. It's too late. The poison is in my blood, he says. You explain your mission, and he shivers at the mention of the Kudam. Look to the garden. Go to the dragon's breath in. They might help. These are his last words. You set off in the direction taken by the orc. So there's uh, an underground tavern somewhere, which is nice. 
You stumble along the tunnel for a long time until you find that it splits in two. The left-hand tunnel has a dragon's head carved above it. Do you want to take this tunnel, or would you prefer to enter the tunnel on the right? We'll go into the tunnel on the left, what with the dragon mark and all. You walk down the tunnel. In the distance, you can make out some blazing torches, and as you get nearer, the tunnel opens out into a cavern. On the right is a stone building, with small, round windows and six torches blazing above the entrance. Standing outside are two large-horned Koyunlo harnessed to a cart. Just below the torches is the famous Dragon's Breath Inn and Alehouse. As you stand there, a large figure in a black cloak comes out of the building and falls flat on his face. Do you want to help, or would you prefer to keep a low profile? I've a soft spot in my heart for all drunks, so I will go and help. You help him get to his feet. He looks at you and you realise he is a troll. Rather the worse for drink. He shouts at you. How dare you touch me, you scum! Kneel down and have your head chopped off. He pulls out a scimitar and takes a swing at you. The drunken troll has a skill of six and a stamina of six. I am going to fight the drunken troll by rolling some dice. I have defeated the drunken troll. It also did no damage to me. Uh, if you win, you hide the body and go into the Dragon's Breath Inn. It is very smoky inside the Dragon's Breath Inn. As you stand in the dark corridor, a goblin comes out of a door on the right. He is chewing on a large bone. He looks you up and down and spits and then enters the door in front of you. You catch a glimpse of the roaring fire as he shuts the door behind him. Do you wish to go through the door in front of you, or prefer to go into the room on your right? Well, let's go through the door in front of you where there's a nice roaring fire. The room is large, with a great fire burning at one end. There are dark cubicles all around, and several people stare at you as you enter. To one side you hear the screams of orcs enjoying themselves, and in the corner sits a miserable-looking dwarf wearing a metal collar. Gadden, where's my food? screams a troll while he punches bits out of the wall. The Gadden walks in. She is blind, but seems to sense her way around without any trouble. She deposits a flagon and plate on the troll's table, comes over to you and sniffs. You smell of Toplander. Why have you come here? There is great danger. Do you choose to confide in her, or decide to leave at once? I will confide in her, I think. It can always depend on the kindness of strangers. When you whisper the name of Orgaz to her, she shivers and tells you to follow her upstairs. She enters a dimly lit room where sits another Gadden. She introduces him as Bosak, her father, and explains your quest for the shield. He sits in silence for a while, blind eyes turned towards the floor. You are in great danger. The Dark Lord's strength increases every day. His kudam now roam at will through our old tunnels, chasms and crags. The iron mines are being worked again by his slaves. You will need Gadden help. Look to the old man in the iron cave. Bosak gives you directions, and his daughter brings you real food. Not the mark we feed to them downstairs. Add two stamina points. Okie doke. This seems to be going suspiciously well. You leave the Dragon's Breath Inn by a side door. 
The directions you were given are precise paces and touchstones. You see the expected rough-hewn stone stairway and you begin a long, winding climb. After a while, you find yourself walking on spiky rocks and notice that the roof of the tunnel is covered with them. They look very dangerous. Suddenly, you hear a crack. Test your luck. So, luck of ten. I roll. Five, that's not good. And a two. Total of seven. Luck reduced to nine. A stone dart misses you. You prepare to ward off other darts with your sword. The stair ends and, as directed, you continue along a level tunnel. Suddenly, you hear a scream for help coming from a large crack on the left. Do you go through the crack to help or ignore the screams? I mean, the good Samaritan thing. It's kind of how I've chosen to play this one, so that's what we're going to do. You run into a small cave. In the middle is a young Gaddon bound up in strange webbing. You check the cave. There are no other exits or tunnels. You begin to cut the sticky bindings when, suddenly, a giant fang spider drops on top of you from the roof of the cave. You squirm out from under it and draw your sword. The fang spider has a skill of six and a stamina of ten. I'm going to roll some dice. No damage whatsoever from the rotund but incompetent fang spider. Uh, I have to say the fights so far have been a bit underwhelming. Everything has had a skill of six. Only the stamina has varied. But hey-ho, we've won. We cut the Gadden free and he takes us to the Iron Cave. There are two doors and he tells you to take the left door at two luck. Well, we can only add one, but luck now back to ten. Nice to be rewarded for doing the heroic thing. You push the door open and find yourself in a large, iron-lined cave. Large books are stacked all around, and in the corner, sitting by a coal fire, is an old Gaddon man. A book is open on his knees, and he is looking straight ahead, feeling the pages with fat, sensitive fingers. He knows you are there. Come in, Tartlander. Ah, you carry the smell of the cool breeze. I have been expecting you for a long time. The old man does not explain his remark. Tabisha jumps down onto his lap and begins to purr. The cat likes him, I like him. In silence you are sure that the old man is also purring. Suddenly you see a dagger flying towards you and before you know it the sword in your hand has leapt up and diverted the point away from you. The cat steered me wrong like an actual cat would. The old man catches his breath. Yes, that is the sword. I helped spellbind the blade many years ago. He picks up a large book from one of the shelves. Now, heir to Tancred, we must be quick. You are in great danger. The Kudam are becoming very strong and enslaving all the other beings in the chasms. As the shield cracks, the Dark Lord becomes more powerful. I cannot teach you much of the sense fight. This I leave to others. But study these symbols carefully. They are from the golden age of the field brethren. Still a nicky name. When most of these tunnels were built. They mean left, right, danger, safe, up and down. There is a picture of 
the old man. We're doing very well for old men and dwarves in this fighting fantasy book. It's been a, a cornucopia of elderly men of one sort or another. There's a picture, lovely details of the bookshelves in the background, and he's holding the book open. And um, the symbols, they're all drawn out on a nine by nine grid. And there's six of them. And I'm going to make a note of this paragraph so that I know to turn back to it. If I come across any of these symbols, this is a good clue. Uh, the old man then brings you another book of secret ciphers, which he explains. Ciphers, the old Gadden counting system, are a way for the blind Gadden to feel certain spellbound numbers, which, when whispered, will open ancient doors, doors that were built in the heyday of the Feel Brethren culture. The sequence has never been discovered by Augurs. Okay, and we've also got a picture of this cipher, which is a different series of nine uh, dots, round ones rather than square ones. And it's kind of interesting in that rather than it being a linear counting scale, it seems to be a sort of logarithmic counting scale with various dots standing for numbers between 1 and 256. Two ciphers to enjoy. The old man brings you food, which I do not need, and tells you to seek the caves of Minasadur, where burns the heart flame. He warns, Temper the sword that it may strike the lethal blow. When you eventually take your leave, you have to decide whether to head to the left or the right. Well, left has been steering us unbelievably well so far, so left it is. The tunnel is long and straight, sloping gently downwards. Suddenly you hear screams and shouts echoing in the distance. As you get nearer to the screaming, the tunnel divides. Above each new tunnel there are some symbols and they are symbols from the Direction Cipher book. So uh, the first set of symbols is Left Safe, and the second set of symbols is Right Danger. So we're going to go left again. After a long walk, you stop to sleep. When you awake, you see Tabisha with a blind fish lying in front of her. If you wish to eat now, you can add four stamina points. Otherwise, mark one meal on your adventure sheet. If you have the means to cook the meal, you can add two extra stamina points. So, we now have a bag of raw mints and raw fish. Hooray, six provisions. When you get up, you hear the shuffling of many feet ahead of you. Looking around, you find two possible places to hide. A little niche on the left, or a hole in the ground to the right. Uh, we'll go for the niche, I think. You push yourself into the niche. The group stops and you hear a woman's voice. Come out of there. You look out and see a hooded woman aiming a longbow at you. Around her stands a group of dwarves. One at the front holds a torch and you notice they are all wearing metal collars. Do you come out or run for it? Oh, uh, I think I'll come out. She's got me over a barrel. There's a picture of the cavern with the dwarves. It's very evocative. He's managed to come up with some really good ways of rendering these tunnels and caverns in a way that makes them look quite visually distinct, even though, at the end of the day, it is all just tunnels and caverns. Good artist, basically. As you approach, the woman draws her bowstring further back and the dwarves rush out to grab your sword, they look carefully at Tabisha, who begins to sharpen her claws on your cloak, and decide 
to leave her alone. One of the dwarfs then pulls out a small wand and twirls it in the air while muttering a strange spell. You see stars swirling around your head and then you collapse. So that's the first significant reversal of fortune I think we've uh, had so far this adventure. Um, let's see what actually happens with it. I don't know whether this book is just quite easy or whether I'm just happening across the right choices, but so far things are going pretty well. You wake up inside a cave. The entrance has a wooden door and on the walls are two trapdoors. The dwarves bustle around looking busy. They are no longer wearing collars. The woman brings you some food saying, I'm sorry about that. Sometimes the orcs use Toplander squads in their armies. Her name is Aspera Smoothcheek and she realises that you must be important. The Kudam have been searching for you. Just then a dwarf rushes in and whistles. All the doors are shut and Asper throws you your sword. She asks you to take up a defensive position. Do you choose the door, the first trap door or the second trap door? I don't like the idea of things coming out and landing on top of me. That seems unpleasant to me so I'll go with the door. Nothing good comes out of roofs. You stand by the door. It is being battered by orcs, urged on by the cries of their captain. Smash it down, you filth. Push harder or I'll chop your hands off. Smash it down, you filth. Push harder or I'll chop your hands off. The door gives way and a battering ram crashes in. You stand in the doorway, ready for combat, as the orcs come through the door. Fight each in turn. There are three orcs. The first orc, the second orc and the orc captain. Uh, if at any time you throw double one, the person who is attacking has been hit by a stray poisoned arrow. However, it doesn't tell you what that means. Yeah, I guess I'll just keep track of whether I've been hit. The first orc has a skill of six and a stamina of six. The second orc has a skill of six and a stamina of five. And the third orc, the orc captain, has a skill of seven. <gasps> He's a beast and a stamina of eight. I'm going to roll some dice. I have survived and no one got hit by any poisoned arrows. So however that works, it never cropped up. Probably for the best. Asper, Smoothcheek and the dwarves all get away with minor wounds. They run fast and split into two groups. Asper goes up a steep path. Do you follow her or go with the group that are slipping through a crack in the tunnel? I think the crack in the tunnel will be dwarf-sized. I'm probably nearer the same size as Asper, Smoothcheek. So I think I will follow her. The fact that she's been given the name Smoothcheek suggests, to me at least, that she has a sibling whose cheek is very far from smooth. Like, cheeks are generally smooth as a standard. Someone in her family has some fascinating skin diseases. You bring up the rear of the group and occasionally stop to check who is following you. You see a horde massing at the end of the tunnel and know that you have little time. When you get to the others, they are standing by a fast-flowing river of lava. The heat is intense. You approach to see a row of tall stepping stones spaced wide apart across the red-hot flow. Aspera grabs one of the dwarves and leaps from stone to stone, but when she reaches the other side, she collapses. You look closely and notice an arrow in her thigh. The dwarf begins to attend her as you pick up the other two, one on either side, and leap across. Throw two dice. This is the distance between the stones. Throw a die and add the number to your stamina. This is your series of leaps. If your jumps are equal to or greater than distance, 
then you have made it. If not, you have fallen in the lava and your quest ends here. Always find these slightly bizarre in the sense that distances are not generally in the real world randomly generated. But, you know, is what it is. I mean, I can't actually fail because my stamina is 20. So even though there's like six jumps I make, 21 jumps, and I'm absolutely fine. Like the mechanics of this are definitely not the best feature. The writing is decent, I would say, but the mechanics feel very underbaked. When you get to the other side, Aspera is pouring a potion onto her wound. She recovers while sporadic arrows land close by and you all rush away. The orcs leap up and down and start fighting amongst themselves. As you explain your quest to Aspera, she tells you that the roads you are travelling will get much more difficult when you enter the lands under Orgaz's direct control. When you stop for a short rest, Aspera Smoothcheek tells you her history. She was of Toplander stock, but she was brought up by the Feel Brethren and has since joined the band of rogue dwarves living off whatever is available. She looks at the dwarves, who are fishing in a small rushing stream. They plunge their hands in and pull out large, white, blind fish. It looks easy. I'm guessing it really isn't. While Aspera is distracted with distant thoughts, do you have a go or let them get on with it? I'll let them get on with it. I'm fine. I am absolutely fine. I would never try to fish like them, says Aspera as she looks at the fish on the ground. They have huge fangs and half their bodies a mouth. However, when cooked, they taste delicious. Soon the others arrive and they all sit in a circle and sing of old times beneath the mountain. Add four stamina points. Tabasha finishes off the bones, licks herself all over and settles down to sleep. After a while, Aspera begins to prepare for a raid and asks you if you wish to stay at the camp or go with her to attack one of Orgaz's provision carts. Do you choose to stay or go? Little Clash reference. Uh, we'll go, because we're in the business of adventure, not in the business of staying in camp. Aspera's smooth cheek sets a fast pace through the small tunnel. After a while, the group stops and begins to climb up the rocky face of the cliff. They are sure-footed and show you all the footholds. When you reach the top, you look into the murky darkness and see a wide tunnel with deep wheel ruts. Soon, you can see torches in the distance, and eventually you can make out the group coming towards you. Two dark elves on Koyunlo, pulling a cart with six orcs shuffling behind on foot. Suddenly, Aspera fires an arrow at one of the elves. It is deflected by his armour and impales itself in his arm. He screams as Aspera and the group leap out. Do you leap out on the other dark elf? Onto the cart or among the orcs? Uh, let's... We haven't fought a dark elf yet. That might make a nice change of pace in the orcs and trolls. We'll, we'll attack the dark elf. The dark elf pulls out a short sword and stabs you in the side. Deduct one skill point and four stamina points. That seems a bit unnecessary. Skill now 10, stamina now 16. You struggle with him. He drops his sword and fights you unarmed. The Dark Elf has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 6. If a double 1 is thrown, the one whose attack round it is has fallen off the cart and is crushed to death under its wheels. If you win, you drive the cart back to the others. Okay, that's quite a nice little combat wrinkle. Again, very unlikely to actually happen, but... You know, I haven't rolled a double one so far this adventure, so maybe this will be the time. Let's find out. Hopefully, it'll be the Dark Elf doing a uh, Brian Harvey out of East 17 and not me. I'm going to roll some dice.
I have defeated the Dark Elf. My superlative rolling completely deserted me. And in this one encounter, I've gone from taking no damage through the first bit of the adventure to being reduced to 10 stamina. So as I drive the cart back to the others, who take all the food and weapons they can carry, before we make our way back to camp, I'm going to use the time to eat some handfuls of raw mints. Two handfuls of raw mints, I think. And that takes us back up to 18. On your return to camp, all of the plundered provisions are laid out and marked by Aspera Smoothcheek. All wounds are attended to, and non-perishable goods are taken away and hidden. She tells you that the tunnels ahead are very dangerous. You will find no friends there. All the Gadden who once owned these lands have been enslaved or killed. She stops talking and stares into the distance. You are given food. Hooray, more raw mints. Mark two meals on the adventure sheet. So back up to f six. Six. Because we've got that sushi as well. You say your farewells and are given a choice of entry into the land of malice. The crying spring or down drop cavern. I have a vague memory of the crying spring being relevant somehow. I have a terrible habit of not really remembering things that happened a few paragraphs ago. Uh, but yeah, we'll go for the crying spring. That does flag as vaguely familiar. You are taken to a tunnel that slopes downwards. In the middle is a shallow stream which you follow for many hours. The water begins to get hot and you can smell a foul stench rising from it. My laptop fan deciding to sound as though it's about to take off. Suddenly, the stream disappears into the ground and there, ahead of you, stands a gate that blocks the whole tunnel. On the gate is a skeleton hanging by a metal spike. You begin to feel around the gate in the dim light of the sword. Do you start to the left or to the right? We'll go left. Good old left. When you step to the left, a trap door opens and you fall into a pit full of sharp metal spikes. Test your luck. If you're unlucky, you are impaled and instantly die. If you are lucky, you land more or less safely. Deduct one stamina point. Testing the old luck. Luck currently ten, so I can't fail with a four and uh, oh, a nine in total. I roll a nine. Reduce my stamina by one. My luck by one, two, nine. And we find a cobweb door that opens easily. You are in a room full of dust and cobwebs. In each corner of the room are unlit torches and some rotting leather armour is piled up in a heap. On the dusty floor you see small footprints leading from an exit north to an exit south. There are four exits in the room. Which do you choose? North, south, east or west? How on earth are we working out compass directions given... We don't have a compass and we're underground. Is north straight ahead of us? One of these exits presumably leads back to the room full of spikes as well. Or are there five exits in total? Busy room. Uh, we'll go for the south exit. We'll follow the, uh, the footsteps. Uh, incorrigible curiosity. As always, you follow the footprints into the southern exit. The corridor is very dusty and the occasional furry creature scuttles across your path, leaving faint tracks. Tabisha chases a few of the creatures, but soon gives up on the sport. Up ahead, where the footprints end, you see a bundle on the ground. As you get nearer, you see that it is a dead trog. On its finger, you notice a bright ring with a gemstone that gleams and sparkles in the dim light. Do you take the ring and put it on, or leave it alone and carry on? In the absence of anything else having killed this poor soul, I guess we're going to assume that it's the ring? 
and we're going to leave it alone and carry on, I think. I do like the fact that, even though it's almost certainly a trap, it's ingrained into gamers that treasure is good. I really did have to think quite hard before deciding I wasn't going to just try on the ring. That's the obvious trap. Rarely fails. You find yourself in an old tunnel that gets smaller and smaller until you have to walk hunched over. Suddenly it ends in a chasm. You look carefully, but even by the light of the shining sword, you can see no end to the abyss below. You kick a large rock over, but you don't hear it hit the ground. You cannot see the other side of the chasm. Do you take a chance and leap across or go back? Jumping to a ledge you can't see that's probably not there. I mean, doesn't sound like the greatest plan in the world. I think we'll go back. I mean, it would be the most hilarious way to die. Uh, I just assumed there'd be a ledge there. So we will go back. It feels as though things are getting a little bit more hardcore at this point. You can hear dog-like noises in the echoing tunnel, accompanied by gruff commands from coarse-voiced trolls. Just then you find a thin crack in the tunnel wall. Test your luck. If you're lucky, you manage to squeeze through into another tunnel. If you are unlucky, you get stuck in the crack and are bitten by a hellhound before squeezing through to duck four stamina points. Test my luck. Yeah, I roll a six, less than my luck of nine. Luck now reduced to eight. The tunnel begins to break up. First, there are small rocks to climb over, then large boulders, until it becomes very difficult to make any headway. As you climb up and down, you come to a mass of tree roots intertwined through the rest of the tunnel. You try and cut your way past, but each blow causes the roots to ooze sap, which then congeals and quickly forms another root. You examine the roots carefully and see three distinct areas through which you might crawl. Do you want to go up, down, or left? Well, good old left. Let's, let's stick with the left. This is quite an imaginative little encounter as well. The tangle of roots gets thicker and seems to squeeze down as you pass. Eventually, there is no way forward or back. You are stuck and will never complete your quest. Well, I don't think I'm going to invoke the sausagey finger bookmark rule on the grounds that I've been recording for over an hour. I will, however, continue playing to see if I can actually beat it off mic. It's an interesting one, this. On a first playthrough, I feel as though there's some really good ideas but they don't quite gel together. Regardless, regardless, I'm going to go away and play this adventure game book some more. I'll speak to you in a couple of moments. Tatty bye. It is now several days later and I have been on a journey. Not the journey that Chasms of Malice advertises, the one which is a thrilling adventure ride into an underground world full of mystery and heroism, but a different journey, one that forced me to confront a bleak and uncaring world in which joy and hope are absent. Chasms of Malice is fighting fantasy's heart of darkness, a nightmare journey into the ugly recesses of humanity's soul. You might think that's a bit of a turnaround from the broadly positive feelings I dimly remember having many thousands of years ago when I did my playthrough of this book, but Sometimes feelings change, and sometimes feelings change for the worse. 
Now, I do this podcast because I love adventure game books in general and fighting fantasy books in particular. We've seen that outside of fighting fantasy, the quality of an adventure game book varies considerably. I joke about J.F. Brennan and his almost superhuman ability to design terrible systems and his complete unwillingness to do a second draft of anything. And within fighting fantasy, we've seen a level of quality control that's, I think, been more or less consistent. There have been books with issues, sure. I don't care for Starship Traveller at all. Caverns of the Snow Witch is a bit of a slog. Space Assassin is a confusing and surreal mess. And Luke Sharp's first book, Star Strider, didn't hang together at all well. Overall, though, I feel like there's always been something to praise. Starship Traveller was trying something new. Space Assassin was strangely fascinating because you couldn't predict the lunatic turns it took at any given moment. But Chasms of Malice is different. Chasms of Malice is designed and written with a lack of care that borders on contempt for the reader. Like I say, I actually felt fairly good about the book after the recorded playthrough. I was looking forward to diving into it in more detail. It's an odd experience playing books out loud because the cognitive load is so much higher than when you're just reading it on the page. As I'm playing, I need to think about how I'm sounding, whether it's time to jump in with a comment so that I can claim I'm creating a transformative work if Puffin ever kicks off, and also what I might want to note down for the review section at the end. It can actually be very hard to assess the actual quality of the work I'm reading because so long as stuff keeps happening in the text, the podcast is usually going pretty well. I feel like I can often tell if I'm really enjoying something, the books where I've been almost breathless with excitement as I play, those stand out to me. But at the lower end of quality, it's not always obvious as I'm playing. I went into my second playthrough thinking that Luke Sharp had actually really upped his game from his first attempt. And listener, I was mistaken. This is a miserable and incompetent affair on almost every level. Let's start with the writing. It's underwritten to a level that would be insulting, I think, even to most children. There are many sections that boil down to, you are in a tunnel, there are two exits, do you want to go left or right? There are monsters that are simply described as creatures. If you're lucky, you might get an adjective like green or ugly, but don't expect to be able to visualise anything from his prose in detail. I hope you already know what an orc or troll looks like because Luke Sharp is just not going to tell you. Nothing has any emotional heft to it. He just flatly describes what you can see and tells you how many exits there are. The final section, the culmination of this glorious adventure, is three sentences long. Your victory is described with all the emotion of a letter from the council telling you that Binde is changing. I wouldn't normally spoil the ending of a fighting fantasy book that I didn't finish live on mic, but I'm actually going to break that to read out the final paragraph just so that you can get a sense of, I wouldn't say of something anticlimactic because that suggests that there was some sort of higher pitch of emotion that the book had managed to generate. It's actually just flatlining at the same level. But anyway, I'm going to read it out so that you can enjoy what Luke Sharp thinks is a worthwhile end to a story. You have succeeded in the quest. 
The Dark Lord augurs is no more, and the shield is once again protecting Gorak from the malice of the chasms. You are hailed as Tancred's heir, and all the knights of the Grey Horse swear allegiance to their new monarch. Thrilling stuff. The lifeless prose is for me made more egregious by the lack of imagination that the author shows throughout. The encounter design is incredibly simplistic, with most of them being a simple either-or decision, and because the encounters are so basic, the map is actually large, possibly the largest area I've ever seen covered in a 400-section book. Now, that would be kind of cool in a book where the aim of the game was mapping or exploration, but the author's chosen to set his adventure in a single biome, so it's tunnels and caverns as far as the eye can see, which isn't far because it's very dark underground. Hope you like fighting orcs and dark elves, because you'll be doing that a whole bunch as well. None of these areas connect to any other area in any kind of logical way. You're supposed to assassinate seven kudams on your way to augurs, but they're just scattered through the text at random. Go down one tunnel, up oh, there's a kudam. Go down the other tunnel, there's an orc. Why is one of Orgaz's lieutenants just chilling out in a tunnel? Who cares? That's why. It's like Ian Fleming writing James Bond bumping into Blofeld in Asda while stocking up on loo roll and washing up liquid. It's so pathetic. It's ludicrous. There's also only six Kudam that you can find because counting is for nerds apparently. All of the Kudams have very good stats, so I hope he rolled well because you'll need to win six fights against opponents with skill 10 and stamina 12. You'll be needing all the raw mints your cat can magic up to get through this one. But it gets worse. I was recording for a good hour somehow before I came across an instant kill paragraph. Since then, and playing it through for a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, etc. time... I've been through and counted up all the ways you can instantly die in this book. I found 25 instant death sections where you're simply told you have died. There are 16 times where you need to test your luck or immediately die. And a further 21 sections where you are instructed to make some other random dice roll or die. That's somewhere around 63 opportunities to instantly die before we've even factored in combat. There's also a bunch of sections that will demand that you test your luck or lose either stamina, skill, or both, uh, as well as various choices that will drain you of stamina or skill or both. I will say that this book is fairly generous with giving you back skill and stamina and luck, but I don't think there's actually enough luck on offer to offset the rates you're likely to go through with it. And that's before we even get on to one-strike combat. Oh, we're getting to that. Don't worry. We're getting to that. What all these deaths tend to share is a sense of arbitrary cruelness. Far too few of them are flagged, though, to be fair, some are. The majority feel like they're coming out of nowhere. You turned left. You have died. You idiot. You obviously should have turned right in a tunnel that was described in about six words. None of the deaths are described with any love or any sense of fun. It's just a litany of falling off things, being shot by arrows, poisoned or crushed to a pulp. Unlike Beneath Nightmare Castle, which absolutely reveled in gruesome descriptions of how you come to a sticky end 
This is just a series of casual murders, evoking nothing except frustration. The author hasn't put any thought into keeping them varied or interesting, the same way that he hasn't put any real thought into the encounter design. There's a few nice, interesting deaths sprinkled in amongst the dross, but he does tend to stick to a few familiar threats. Orc ambushes, arrows, poison. You're going to be seeing a lot of those. We now come to the one-strike combat rules, which is very much the rotting elephant carcass in the room. I erred in the early part of the recording when I said that one-strike combat meant fighting a single round of combat with the loser falling to their death, because that would actually have made some kind of sense. In practice, you don't actually use your skill, you just roll two dice for each fighter, with the person rolling lower falling to their death. You've got a 50-50 chance of an instant death with every single one-strike fight you do. I think from looking at solutions online, and God bless the people who've been through and tried to create an optimal path through this nonsense, I think that there's only two one-strike fights that are actually required. But, as basic probability tells us, that's still only a one in four chance of making it through. If you take a less optimal path, you can end up needing to do four one-strike fights in a row in a single section. It just tells you, do four one-strike combats in a row. That's a one in 16 chance of making it out of that section. The path I took on the playthrough where I got to the end, by which time I was not rolling dice because life is far, far, far too short. The path I took had eight one-strike fights in, giving me a 1 in 256 chance of making through had I been actually rolling dice. And the only reason you would still be rolling dice would be because you hate yourself and feel deep down in the bones of your soul that you deserve punishment. What makes this so unbelievably frustrating is that this is simple maths. It doesn't take a genius to work out that if a single 50-50 roll kills half of all players, each additional 50-50 roll drastically reduces the chance of anyone actually making it through. I can barely count and I can work out that multiple 50-50 rolls are going to stack to incredibly unlikely outcomes. It would be kind of interesting to try and compute your chances of making it to the end of this book by the optimal route. We already know that the absolute best case scenario is that one in four of your attempts will be successful. And I imagine there's a fair few luck rolls that you have to make along the way as well, to say nothing of anything up to six difficult fights. Now I've ranted there because this is literally hours of my life that I'm never getting back, but there is something interesting I think we can take away from this. And it's the way in which all of these problems are symptoms of something deeper, a deeper issue with the book. And I think from this we can learn some interesting lessons. Firstly, underground locations are genuinely hard to write well. For all that dungeons are such a huge part of fantasy gaming, I think they are one of the hardest things to get right. In tabletop gaming with 
Dungeons and Dragons and similar games. There's a lot that only really works because of the social context of a group of friends chucking some dice about. You're having a good time because you're hanging out with your friends and that's a nice thing to do. Without that social context, an adventure game book dungeon really does need to be good, not to end up feeling repetitive at the best of times. You just don't have that sense of goodwill to fall back on. Now, there are, I think, two approaches to gamebook dungeons that work really well. One is a small series of intricately designed encounters where everything depends on everything else. The Citadel of Chaos is a good example of this one. And the other is to have a lot of very memorable images and ideas and allow those to carry a somewhat simpler design. And Death Trap Dungeon is the classic example here. You can also mix and match like Creature of Havoc does. So you need to have either really good design skills for a dungeon or really good writing skills and imagination for a dungeon. Now, the issue with Chasms of Malice is that there is so little mechanical depth that the author just doesn't have the tools available to him to create intricate encounters. He doesn't make use of items to any great extent. He doesn't use keywords at all. The only bespoke mechanic he's come up with is a straight 50-50 dice roll, and the various other random elements all boil down to rolling a bunch of dice and living and dying on the outcome. With everything happening in the space of a single section or a couple of sections, things that ought to be epic are instead dispensed with in a handful of words. One of the things you can do, which I think is advanced level game book design, is you can actually use section breaks, which aren't strictly necessary from a design perspective to create tension. Because every time you need to turn to a new section, you are creating a sense of mystery. And that creates distance between two things that are happening temporarily very close together and there is that sense of adrenaline as you go oh is it going to be another trap is it going to be magic is it going to be something that i want luke sharp doesn't do any of this everything is boiled down to the fewest number of sections and that means that he just needs to create a much larger number of encounters but because his design tools are so limited he ends up having to reuse mechanics over and over again and that compounds the lack of depth and the fact that his imagination is, on the evidence of this, somewhat limited, it means that he's struggling more and more to come up with new ideas to fill this giant space that he's created. I can forgive a lack of mechanical complexity, because mechanical complexity is the hardest bit of design, but copy and pasting the same encounter into five different places in the text shows a lack of imagination. I find it harder to be charitable towards. If you look at Island of the Lizard King, not one of the very greatest fighting fantasy books from a pure design point of view, but every encounter, even though there's a lot of just straight-up combat encounters, every encounter is designed to sell the idea of travelling through this prehistoric landscape. And that's just totally absent here. I try not to be judgmental towards the actual person behind the books because at the end of the day, 
they're just someone trying to make their way in the world the same as the rest of us. But there does come a point where I question whether writing game books is really the right career path for someone. I'm kind of dreading having to cover not one but two more Luke Sharp books in the relatively near future. And I don't like being so negative on this podcast, but unless something has drastically changed in either his writing philosophy or his design philosophy, I suspect they're going to be a mammoth slog. Now, I don't want to finish on a sour note, so I want to look at some potential positives. And happily, there are a few elements of this book I did enjoy. Firstly, the cats. The idea of combining provisions with the traditional potion and get-out-of-jail-free card is genuinely good design on one level because it gives the player increased flexibility, which is kind of cool. You no longer have a separate pool of provisions and get-out-of-jail-free cards. It's all coming from one place. That's quite clever, Uh, especially because you get to combine those functions with an NPC and they're a rarity in game books. And it's lovely to have this little cat accompanying you on your adventure. That's just genuinely nice. He doesn't quite stick the landing, of course, because ultimately he can't think of much for the cat to do beyond bring you the things that she's killed. But there's still a really good idea in there, and cats are almost always awesome. They are, as a wise person once observed, all good cats. I also really like the core premise of delving into an unfamiliar subterranean world. It seems hackneyed today, but it was much less hackneyed in 1988. And there's hints of some really interesting ways that you could take it. The Field Brethren may have a deeply icky name, but the idea of a civilization composed of Marvel's daredevils is a good one, verging on great. Sadly, of course, there's not enough made of the Field Brethren for it to be a wholly positive invention, but the bones of something fun are in there. In practice, the Orcs and Dark Elves just become an interchangeable set of dull fights, sometimes with the chance of falling off something if you roll a double one. But you could do something fun, I think, with different sections of this underground realm being controlled by different factions and maybe being able to play them off against each other as you make your way through contested territory. Yojimbo has been remade about a thousand times anyway, so why not do it underground? And that, I think, would help with one of the significant problems with the text, the way that every area looks and feels exactly the same. If instead you had an orc area, a dark elf area, a field brethren area, and a kind of contested area where they're all fighting over territory, then you can make them visually and thematically distinct so that you aren't just writing a series of tunnels and caves. A fetid orcish burrow has a different ambience than a Dark Elves decadent underground palace, I would submit. And that would address one of the key problems in that it would make it easier for the player on subsequent playthroughs to work out where they haven't explored yet. And I think that's a very underrated part of design, but one of the key elements for making replaying a book feel enjoyable is try and make as many of the choices as memorable as possible so that they stick in the mind and people can remember, oh yeah, I went that way after the orcish ceremony. I should try going the other way. Or I went that way after robbing the Dark Elves' larder, and I should try going that way. The more memorable you can make every element of the book, the easier it is for the player on subsequent playthroughs. And the more attractive 
subsequent playthroughs become because it's fun finding all of these encounters. I will also say that assassinating the Kudam along the way to make the final fight easier, that's very much my kind of design idea. I think that seven, albeit actually six in practice, fights is too many. If he'd done three, you could have had three memorable and distinct encounters where you defeat them all in different ways, ranging from a straight fight to laying a trap or defeating them in a battle of wits. I always like it when you can get to the end without finding absolutely everything because knowing that there's an optimal path and flagging that clearly in the text is the thing most likely to make me feel good about going back and trying again. But regardless of how I try and slice it, and there are a few bright spots, I do think Chasms of Malice is my least favourite book in the series so far. It's not one I can really recommend picking up on any level and I feel like the people selling it on eBay are most likely trying to rid themselves of a curse, like the haunted videotape in the uh, horror movie Ringu. I don't regret playing it, but I do regret spending so much time trying to pick it apart to find out how it works. Still, the next one is Battleblade Warrior, which I loved as a child. So even if that one turns out to be bobbins, there'll be a nice warm afterglow of nostalgia to carry me along. I'm hoping I might manage a bonus episode next month as well. I had originally said I wasn't going to do any further bonus episodes this year, but I've got something I'm itching to play through, so that may materialise in December. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. I've had a couple of really nice emails recently, and I have to say they brighten my day considerably. Thanks very much for listening and I'll see you soon.